How you guys doing, Chinese Magic family? It's your host, Mark Karaki. Excited to bring you yet another episode of the podcast. This week, I had the privilege of sitting down with Mr. Eric Oya, CEO and co-founder at Planet 42. Exciting startup out of Johannesburg, South Africa, that is tackling the problem of car ownership for the, not unbanked, but the folks who banks are not paying attention to in terms of giving them uh, access to financing to own their own car. So it's a financial services startup providing a unique approach to vehicle ownership in a rent-to-buy model in emerging markets. Fantastic story. Oya is originally from Estonia, as you will hear. Very down-to-earth, very practical, pragmatic. Uh, a great story of how you know they found an idea and moved to a different corner of the planet to to pursue the idea. And the approach was was just uh, very instructive in terms of how you should. Uh, look at ideas try to disprove them first before you try to prove them so this is a fantastic podcast which i'm sure you'll enjoy how are you doing eric welcome to the podcast hi hi doing well mark how are you pretty good i guess you are dialing in from johannesburg how are things in joba today uh, it's good. Uh, nice day. It's actually a big day for us. You just caught us uh, accidentally on the day that we're moving into our first like very own big office. So far, All we're right. we're like seventy people actually now in Johannesburg and still at a co-working space. So we're moving into a proper office today after this recording. Actually, congratulations. That's gotta be exciting. Uh, Thank you. Having your own home is a big deal in any situation. Yeah, it's a good kind of like ne- next step in the, in the kind of the maturity of the company. We now actually have a, have an actual office now that we have signed a you know long term lease agreement and so on. So it's a, a big step. Fantastic. So Eric, I'm really excited about this. I love what you guys are doing with Planet Forty Two, and I need to dive into this story and and how it came about and how it's going and so on and so forth. And basically, more importantly, your story. You grew up actually in Rapina, Estonia. Rural municipality of 4,611 people. What was that like growing up in a, more like a big village, I would, I would imagine? Or maybe I'm speaking out of turn? Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a fair description. It's like a fairly big village. No, I had an extremely happy childhood. You were growing up and then your mom just kicks you out to the house in the morning. You come back for lunch and then you, you're out again and, and then you come back for dinner. A lot of outdoor stuff climbing, you know, trees, riding, riding bicycles, that kind of, yeah, it was just a very happy and easy, easy childhood uh, for me. So I'm, I'm, I feel, you know, very privileged that I was, I was able to grow up in a big village, as you said. Did you at some point feel that, oh, okay, maybe I've outgrown this. And when was that point in your life? Not, not really outgrown this. I, I go back to, to Rapina still because my parents still live there uh, and I'm very happy to go back. I, I enjoy spending time there. But it just came like naturally. So I moved out uh, of the house when I was uh, 16 because I went to high school or, or in South Africa it's called matric, but 10th grade basically. And I went into right. to, a, to a boarding school that had this, it's, it's like a, a good government school, but it was like a 60 kilometers away from uh, from my parents house so when i was 16 i moved into these dormitories and went went to high school it was the first step away from this from this um, you know large village it was i went moved into like a city um, or actually more like a town 
Uh, and then after after high school, I went to the did my military service in the Estonian Defense Forces. That was in a big city, and then I went to university, which was in a, in a different country. So every every time I did like this new thing, I went a little bit further away, a little bit like like bigger. And obviously Johannesburg now for the past five years, this is the you know largest city I've ever lived in. Fantastic. Yeah, growing up in Rapida, how do you say it? Rapida, Rapida. Okay, what did you want to be when you grew, grew up? What were you thinking about? What did you have an idea of what you wanted to do? Or were you not even thinking about beyond the, the horizon? What was inspiring? Who were your heroes? I think it was just like, and it's been the same more or less the whole time. I just want to have a, like a good time and learn about to just get, get better, but I haven't had a clear thing where I have to be like a CEO or IT developer or like a police officer or something like that. I never had crystallized like that. I just never wanted to be bored. And this was a thing like, you know, when I was growing up, like mm. 20 years ago, you could still be bored because you didn't have the phone and so on. You didn't have a phone. No, no, <laughs> eliminate it. Eliminate right? it. <laughs> Nobody's ever bored anymore because just you can scroll like whatever on your phone or watch a TV show or something like that. But that was an actual thing it used to be. Back in the day, bored. yeah. Bored. Yeah. more that was actual experience. <laughs> yes, yes. And and I hated being bored. So I kept doing like weird stuff uh, or just like anything, really go out with friends or read books or I don't know, do some sports and so on. I just kept doing different things and then learning. So it's just... Like this learning and not being bored, that's been like a driving force uh, for me. I've never had something that I need to buy a Ferrari (laughs) or something like that. I don't really care about things like that. Fantastic. Amazing. Yeah, because I was looking at your your, your LinkedIn profile and you had a very varied background in terms of the work you've put your hand to. There's one that you say you're a laborer, lawnmower, infantry team leader. Before you actually got into formal employment, uh, as an intern at, at NASDAQ and got into the investor venture space. So what was that about? Like, because it's a very varied background and then you also put it on LinkedIn. So it means something to you. Right? Mm-hmm. So you did a bunch of different things trying to, I guess it was part of that idea of trying to stay away from boredom. But what was that about? Like in terms of how you did all those things and put all those things on your LinkedIn profile, what do they mean to you? I think so. the reason why, okay, the reason why I did day labor stuff and like a lawnmower and so on, just because I wanted to make money as a kid, like you're Got it. like, like, so my, my parents were always like very supportive, but they also didn't like, we didn't have all that much money. And then even if we would have had a lot of money, they wouldn't give it like, okay, here's, I don't know, money for a toy or something you have to right. work for stuff. Right. Uh, so they encouraged me as well. Like as a kid, I think like the first, we also helped out at uh, different kind of farms. We were like growing like cabbages and then strawberries, like my family was, and then we were selling them at the market. And so it's like this mm. uh, hustling lifestyle a bit. But you had to like work for everything. And I think it's important just to show like that there isn't, there's too much like this. I think there's too much emphasis now on the, the that there needs to be like a, like a story or like this some, somehow like visionary. That, okay. Like I was like three years old and then I knew that I'm going to be uh, like a CEO of, of a tech company. Just, fuck that. Nobody has. I've never interviewed anybody who's ever said that actually. Thankfully. <laughs> well, that, that, that's good. That's, that's good. weird. But, but, but if you look at like, a lot of the, these LinkedIn profiles, there's just, there's just so, so everybody, I knew all the time that's exactly what I'm going to be doing. And this is like this logical path, like every piece of right. the puzzle. Like I'm just like, uh-huh. I, I was like mowing lawns and then I was selling like phones at the, the supermarket. And then I was in the army and then I was like an intern. You are just uh, living life, like, man. Yeah, you are just living doing life different things. 
yeah, yeah. that's fantastic and yeah. if you look i've also had like other stuff there like i've done like some some extra courses which is you have to do some like legal like you learn something about like law like uh, venture funding something then i took a course called i think it was the science of well-being which is basically like, mm. like a happiness course i took it took the course together with my wife and i had it on linkedin as well it's good it's, you should have like different things you shouldn't be just but this is my one, one thing and then right. I'm, I'm just doing this one thing i'm great at this but then don't ask me about anything else Amazing. So six years of safe formal employment before you became, you made the leap towards entrepreneurship. And what triggered that? How, how did that come about? Uh, I was bored. Because you seemed like you had, and you were bored. There you yes. go. <laughs> okay, talk about it. No, after, after university, I worked at an investment bank. And then I worked at a vehicle finance company. Mm. And I, I left the investment bank because I got bored there. I was like, I was selling equity funds to like Scandinavian insurance companies or something. So oh my God. Quite, it wasn't <laughs> that, that, that interesting. And then I got this opportunity to be the country manager of a vehicle finance company. Uh, and that was still in Estonia. So the, the company was expanding and it looked like a cool thing. I switched over to that. So I spent, I think two or three years in the investment bank and then two or three years also in this vehicle finance company. But then it was really interesting. I learned a lot. The team grew. Mm -hmm. We became like the best performing company in the group in, in this vehicle finance company. And it's, there's great people joined. Mm -hmm. They're still doing really well, but it did get also in that sense, if you have like a stable, like good business, then sometimes if you haven't, like you need to optimize, not just keep changing everything, not to have revolutionary change. And I, mm. I'm more like, I want to just, okay, let's rip this thing out and build it out from scratch. Something new. But once you have a well-performing company already, that actually doesn't make sense anymore. You need somebody with a, mm. with a steadier hand, steady hand, more optimizing. Yeah. And then I kept trying to like disrupt. Exactly. <laughs> so I wasn't actually doing the company anymore favors. And then I, I was bored in a sense that like, I, I started a, like a bar on the side uh, with three of my friends, which was like nice. a spectacular failure. Uh, oh, wow. What did you do wrong? Ah, a lot of things. We spent too much money initially making it look really cool. Location wasn't great. We didn't really get the right people, but there was also just like none of the owners was doing this like full time. So we, it was all like, like a side hustle. Part time, and, side yeah. hustle deal, yeah. We had a lot of fun there with the friends and parties and so on, but it didn't work as, as a business. As a business. Uh, so it was, more of a, it was more of like an extended expression of, not wanting to be bored even more. So let me actually start a bar and it began yeah. something you enjoyed. Yeah. So something like that. And then luckily when that bar was busy failing, then my good friend and co-founder, Martin Orgna, whose idea it was to uh, make this business idea from him. Mm -hmm. So he, he actually, we went to the same school. We went, we worked at the same investment bank. So we had been like mates for well over a decade. Okay. That's great. And then he just approached me and said like, like his job in the investment bank was actually assessing different business ideas in sub-Saharan Africa. And he lived in mm -hmm. Mozambique, uh, was a CFO at a logistics company. But he approached me saying, okay, mm -hmm. I've looked at hundreds of business ideas. This is the best one that I have. This plan for it too. I did socially, <laughs> social inclusive cost. Were, were you guys, were you guys always looking at ideas or was it completely out of the blue? No, it was quite a, because we were like, we were friends. Like we would meet up every once in a while when he was back from Africa or something like that, have a couple of parties and so on. We also had worked at, on different projects together. So I was trying to raise money for one of his African projects or something like that in that. Mm, okay. Got it. 
But, but when he came to me, he said, okay, like I have this uh, like car subscription idea, like vehicle finance, basically. And I was doing that in, in, in Estonia. So it was a natural kind of, you know, I was the Six, natural yeah. person for him to ask. Yeah. And then we started looking at it together and we're like, shit, like this looks like a great business idea. And we cannot figure out why doesn't this company exist. So we did, well, that's amazing. We, yeah. we did the, like the, this desktop research, like we were researching, trying to find other competitors, like, right. like like, Why hasn't it been like, done before? Are we crazy? What are we not seeing? Yes, exactly. We must be. This thing must exist. So there's, right. you know, like not more than 20% of people can get like vehicle finance from a bank. Like, and what, what about the other 80%? And there just right. wasn't, wasn't the solution there. And we were looking at, okay, these people have, the people who don't get bank finance, they have stable incomes. A lot of them mm -hmm. do at least. Mm -hmm. Pretty decent credit records. It doesn't make sense. What's why can't wrong? they get a, why can't they get vehicle finance? Because I knew from my experience in like in Europe running a vehicle finance company, if you right. bring these people with this income, with this credit record into Estonia or, or whatever, Germany, Finland, mm. they would get mm. bank finance, but mm -hmm. not, not the case in South Africa. So we couldn't figure it out remotely. Right. So then uh, we took vacations uh, and then flew to uh, Cape Town and Johannesburg just, and literally we're just, okay, look, so we have this business idea. Let's try to break it. Right. So <laughs> that's, it looks that's great great. to be true. Let's, let's just I drag it through the mud. Let's, exactly. let's talk to different Destroy people. It. <laughs> yeah. So you, we want to talk to like insurance companies with lawyers, with uh, car dealerships, with potential customers, just trying mm -hmm. to break the thing for two weeks. And then mm -hmm. we flew back. I was like, shit, there's no reason it's why this thing doesn't exist. It's a great idea. It, I don't understand why it doesn't exist. So <laughs> we went back to Estonia, raised like a half a million euro angel round from Estonia, and then moved to South Africa to launch the business. I love it because you, it, it is how things come to be. My sense is, I, I firmly believe that the, the genesis or the emergence story of a founder and their co-founding narrative, I'm not saying it contradicts success, but it's, it's a good barometer in terms of you guys were not trying to make it work. You're trying to kill the idea, but it refused to die. Fantastic way to actually get started. So it explains the question why you moved to South Africa from Estonia. I guess that was your beachhead market, if you will. And now it sounds like you're going uh, global and going to Mexico as your next market. So you've been in South Africa for five and a half years, right? If you could describe the different stages of your company's evolution, you have half a million dollars, you land in Joburg or Cape Town. Not, not sure which one, I'm sure you'll tell us. Joburg. But what are the, what were the different phases of your company's evolution? So. We landed in, in Johannesburg in uh, June of 2017, so five years ago, pretty much, having raised the, the age around, and we knew that we needed to prove with that age around that the business like model itself is viable. Yeah. Yeah. So we couldn't just like, okay, let's hire like uh, 10 people and start smashing. We knew that we needed to put most of that money into cars to show that we generate revenue. Mm. So. When we first landed, and maybe Eric, yeah. before you go on, maybe if you could describe for the audience what you guys actually do. Okay, yeah. Planet Forty Two, our product, the the service that we offer is social inclusive car subscription, mm -hmm. which is really just a fancy way of saying that we put secondhand cars in the hands of people that we believe are unfairly ignored by this underbanked segment of people who have bank accounts, so we can verify their income. Mm -hmm. uh, but for one reason or another, a bank is not. Uh, willing to give Backing them vehicle mm -hmm. finance. And then our average age of the car that we buy is about 12 years right now. Mm -hmm. But we've bought like brand new cars and also like 30 year old cars. So we don't really restrict that. We buy these cars from uh, used car dealerships mostly. 
And again, this starting from Johan in, in Boxburg having 20 cars in his dealership up to CMH Group, which is listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, like a big uh, dealership group. We buy cars from, um, from dealerships and we put those cars in the hands of our customers who pay us a monthly subscription fee. Uh, the subscription fee is inclusive of um, GPS tracker and also comprehensive insurance. And it's, it's a flexible form of kind of owning a car. The customer can buy the car out anytime if they want to, but they can also return it uh, if they don't want the car anymore or they need to like get a bigger car or maybe they've lost their job and they can't afford the car anymore. So they, unlike with a bank where the contract isn't really breakable, if you default, then it's like really bad for you. It ruins your credit record. You will owe a lot of money. And for us, you can just return the car. Then and, and your credit record will still like show that you have be fully, honored the, fully honored the financial commitment to us. Interesting. Yeah, I, I lived in the U.S. for, for a long time. And vehicle leasing is a, is a entire way now people actually access cars. But it's, it's always brand new or pretty much what they call refurbished, pre-owned, and you buy it from the dealership. So they're pretty high quality cars for the most mm -hmm. part in terms of the vehicle leasing idea. So it sounds like you guys are going in, you don't care about the age of the car. It could be 30 years old, like you said. How do you guys underwrite that risk? How do you manage? What's the calculus here? So we underwrite the risk of the customer. Mm -hmm. We focus on, on the customer. So, and the, the way our model works is uh, it's fully remote. So we don't physically see uh, the customer. We don't physically see the car. But of course, used cars, especially old used cars, they do uh, break down. And in mm -hmm. there, we're focused on setting up this incentive structure for the dealerships. Mm -hmm. So if, if, it, if, you, if you look at it from a game theory uh, standpoint, if it would just be like one turn that we just buy a car and that's it, then the dealership has no, absolutely no motivation or incentive, incentive. To, to like sell us a good car. Yeah, to be a good actor. Mm -hmm. Yes, but that this is a multi-turn uh, game. For many of our dealerships already now, we buy more cars than all the banks combined. So just some background just to give you some uh, scale here. We have now bought more than 10,000 cars. In the last five years, the last five and a half. Yes. Yeah, since we launched more than 10,000 cars, and uh, in 2021 alone, it was more than 5,000 cars. So the growth is like accelerating significantly. Wow. wow. But, but what, what, what was the trigger? Was yeah. it the pandemic? Because I know during the pandemic, somehow it had this effect of people buying cars, which mm -hmm. I would never have predicted. What was that spike? So for us, the bottleneck always has been funding. So it, it's just taken us, and, and it's not just equity funding, it's debt funding. So we don't want to buy cars for equity. That's uh, mm -hmm. it's not that really sustainable. So we, we're raising about 10 times more debt than we do raise equity. Got it. Uh, so it's just been basically like, uh, we've always seen this absolutely immense demand for the service. There's literally millions of people who need a car, who can afford a car, who really deserve a car, but they cannot mm. get access to it. So mm. the demand for us has always been absolutely insane. For the first three years, we did zero marketing. We had to hold back our sales guy. Hey, don't sign up any more dealerships because we don't have the money to buy all the cars <laughs> that they want us to buy. It, the demand was outstripping supply. Wow, that's amazing. That's very yes. cool. Yeah, yeah. So the big kind of like increase has been that we have, we've gotten like uh, some big debt funding tickets uh, opened and it's getting better and better uh, now as well. So right now we're buying about a little bit more than 500 cars a month, but uh, we see that demand is there uh, already now to do more than a thousand a month. And uh, we've seen wow. it in, in, in two years, we can do 10,000 cars a month in South Africa alone. So the demand is absolutely insane. We just need to figure out where to raise all the money here. And it's, it's mostly abroad. For sure. Makes total sense. So yeah, phases. 
five and a half years, mm -hmm. different phases. You walk in half a million dollars into Joe Berg. What, what are the phases? How many phases have we been through? Distinct phases that you can, you can describe. Yeah. So walk us through that. All right. So let's see. Like, I think well, first phase for sure, it's, it's just the two co-founders in Johannesburg landing in June of 2017. And then it took us about nine months to buy the first car. So it's pretty much like, uh, you know, having a baby. It takes nine months. Yeah, so it took us nine months to set up. You need to build up the, the backend system. You need to agree with an insurance company to insure your fleet. You right. need to set up like payment processing. Also basic stuff, like just, we need like a bank account. We need to need the legal entity yep. of the company. So yeah. all that stuff took nine months. Stuff, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then we bought the first car. Uh, and then it took, uh, I think it was from the very first car, it was about six months to buy the hundred, uh, the first hundred cars. Wow. And then, then we were like out of, out of money, but with those hundred cars, those customers were paying us well enough so that actually just the two co-founders and a hundred cars and all the business costs and so on, we were profitable already. Fantastic. First. And because we were able to show like how that this is based on cars, but still it's a viable model. We can actually, it throws off like more money than we're putting in that enabled us to start raising debt already in that stage. Mm. So then we raised a, a couple of debt rounds, put those into more cars, started hiring the first people. I think that maybe that's, that would be, you could call it as the second phase where you actually have employees. Because in the beginning, right. it's just like weird. It's the two of you sitting in a, in a really shabby, like townhouse in Boxburg. Uh, <laughs> super cold, like just in the middle of the winter, and just looking at each other, like, it's okay, I'm CEO, you're CFO, and there's nobody else working. Great. <laughs> That's as far as it goes. <laughs> yeah, so like, at that time, I think we were just going, we were introducing ourselves as founders because it just sounded weird. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. CEO of fucking no one. Sorry for uh, swearing. It's totally fine. <laughs> we're yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, first, first phase is just like co founders trying to get stuff like done having the baby. I think maybe then the second phase will start when we bought the first car and we started having revenue. That's a big, always a big mm -hmm. moment. And then, yeah, we, when we started raising, like we got like the debt funding in, we increased the, the fleet, we increased the team, um, hired a head accountant and then start hiring support staff in, in South Africa who were initially, because we, we like the founders also processed all the applications they're coming in and we looked at the credit records and, and, and so on. And then we started, you know, hiring people to get that like away from us. And then our focus was among other things, signing up dealerships. So I was just riding around with my motorbike, signing up dealerships saying, Hey, like we we'll buy cars for uh, people that uh, banks are ignoring. Yeah. So that was like, you know, we did every single job ourselves. And then we started hiring people to do those jobs and taught them how to do those jobs. Mm -hmm. grew, then like the teams grew as well and, and so on. So that was, that was like, uh, and, and it's been all the time, as I said, like the bottleneck is just, like, we saw that this demand, always see that the demand outstrips the the supply that we can provide. There's always more and more like people want cars and we we're not able to, we don't have enough money to buy all these cars, but we still grew, of course, as I said, like more than 10,000 cars so far. And we're seeing like this finally now after five years, we have this like long enough track records that is, you know, compelling to most investors that we can uh, actually, it's easier to have these discussions about uh, raising money now than it was well, five years ago when it was basically saying, Hey, can you give me some money? I want to buy like a 10 year old car for a person that the bank thinks is too risky. It's not a really, it's not a great pitch. <laughs> that, that's not a strong pitch. <laughs> exactly. You're going to get a lot of side looks. So, you know, most recently attracted the attention of Maspers, which is a big endorsement because they are a very established investment house and um, hold co kind of company, very interesting structure. That's a big endorsement. So 
raised 30 million. Talk us through that last round. What's the ratio between debt and equity and what are you going to do with it? Yeah, it's mostly debt. As I said, like we're aiming to raise about 10 times more debt than equity. That round, it was still, uh, it was, was the ratio wasn't quite there, but yeah, like Nasper uh, made a substantial investment, which uh, is very important for us because this is the first South African investor mm -hmm. uh, who, who backed us. So far, it was mm -hmm. all European or, or US investors, both debt and equity. We'd raised right. money from abroad and invested in South Africa. Nasper was the first local really first, first investor, like local investor going, like, who really looked into the, the business saying, this makes a ton of sense. We're, we're backing these guys to grow 10 and a hundred times from where they are. It was a major kind of a moment for us getting last on boards in this previous round. Yes, what we did with the money or what, what are we planning to do with, with the money? So that 30 million, that's gone. And then we're constantly still fundraising. As I said, we're buying about like 500 cars right now each month, but we can easily buy more than a thousand. Work is again, ongoing, raising more. Uh, capital, both uh, debt and equity. Of course, in this current environment uh, with markets crashing, uh, right. Russia invading uh, Ukraine and all Your that neighbors, stuff. Yeah. 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 So that's, uh, that's not helping fundraising, but we're still doing well. And also for us, it's, it's very important. It's like, again, the, the business model itself is super resilient. So for example, we don't have a, what's traditional known as cash burn. So our customers pay the rental fees, everybody's salaries, the uh, office rent, the interest rates, uh, payments that we have to make on our debt and so on. Uh, and we have money left over to buy about a hundred cars a month organically, but wow, you know, we, we don't, cool. don't want to buy a hundred cars a month. We want to buy a thousand and then 3000 and 5,000 and 10,000 cars. So that's why we're uh, raising money. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I also uh, run a venture fund. We just launched our, our venture fund. We just closed our first close. It's called from here ventures. And if, if you. We're not a debt fund in any way, shape or form our debt fund yet. We're mm -hmm. paying on the equity side, but yeah, send me your deck and I have a network so I can share that out. would love to see more, more about that, but back to the Absolutely. story. So moving from Estonia or mostly Eastern Europe or Scandinavia area to South Africa, it's definitely culture shock in some way, shape or form. Given South Africa, the country it is and the history. First question is how familiar are you with, with South Africa's history before you moved and how familiar are you with it now? I think I was book smart in a sense that I read a couple of books about South Africa before moving. So one of them was actually called like a history of South Africa. And then one book was about Johannesburg and, and so on. So I think I had a fairly good theoretical background, but of course that doesn't substitute for the real thing, but I've never. I've always felt very comfortable. I don't, yeah, like it's, it is different, but I like different. Like I've lived in different countries during my, my, my life so far. And I enjoy learning about, uh, you know, new cultures and so on. And, and I also understand that I, like I am the immigrant. So if, like some stuff mm -hmm. doesn't make sense to me or then like it, then it's tough, tough shit. If you don't like it, go away. <laughs> uh, what are some of those things, for example, the peculiarities between some of the things that surprise you or that are different? I think they, like the, the first thing that most, uh, at least like entrepreneurs will say is just the, let's say the, the level of civil service or, or the government like functions. So mm. Estonia, we're very spoiled there because we have the first true digital society in the world. So we like vote online, we sign amazements online and so on. And this is, it's not just like theoretically possible that like everybody does it basically, or most of the country is doing that. Opening a bank account that takes a week, that's just like, why? We're getting yeah. some paper done or something like it doesn't, it's just, everything is very slow. Like 
mm-hmm. you know, for us to, mm-hmm. to start buying cars for our company, like we need to go to this specific like traffic registry, like department, blah, blah, blah thing. But that specific person who can give us this document is only there every two weeks on a Tuesday from 10 to whatever, one o'clock or something. And then if you miss it, then the next two weeks it's gone. And then even if you <laughs> get there and get there on time, it actually might not be there. I go like, how do you like, how do you run a country like this? And so on. there's a lot of this like inefficiencies, but again, we also acknowledge that if there you know, wouldn't be any of these inefficiencies, then most likely we wouldn't have a business either. So there's a lot of this friction in the system. Like, like right. again, if you're going like back to a kind of this, this core service, we are putting cars in the hands of people who actually have stable income. They can afford the car and they really you know, need the car but they just can't get access to it. So it's just like, you know, pointless. They like, instead of having a car, which they, they could afford, they're sitting in a taxi that's which slow and reliable and dangerous yeah. and yeah. so on. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Uber, which uh, Uber or Bolt, which is uh, expensive. Uh, it's still a luxury yeah. service yeah. in most of these places. So that is pointless friction. This person should have, a, have, its own, have, have his own or her own car. So we're like Fantastic. pulling this pointless friction out of the system. It's not, we're not going to like, we're not going to like some these townships, people who have no incomes and then now push a financial obligation on them. That's, it's a nice and cool story. You can go like, listen, I, I helped this person to come out of poverty to become like whatever the richest man in the world or something. But that's not how the real world works. The, nope. the, way, the way that the real world works is that you have people with stable jobs, stable incomes, but they, their life is unnecessarily difficult because they just can't get a car. So we're, that's the inefficient, that's the pointless kind of friction that we're like pulling out of the system and making the economy more efficient. It's fantastic. Yeah. And, and two, I guess you guys are both Estonian. Your, your, your co-founder is Estonian as well? Yes. So you find yourself in Johannesburg, South Africa, with its very checkered history, race relations, basically a, a country that's built on oppression fundamentally and all the kind of juxtaposition the position of those two kind of those two that's reality poverty inequality segregation crime i think it was last year there was quite a bit of unrest how did you process entering such a society how did you process that reality the racist kind of background upon which everything else is on top of right now in south africa there's always like these tensions and and uh, like from the past and I think a, a big thing is that a lot of people carry this. There's a lot of stereotypes. People have stereotypes about Zulus, Afrikaans, Sutus, like uh, Indians. That there's always people always have a stereotype in their head, and that kind of like some, it, it can get in the, in the way. Like two people are meeting, mm-hmm. okay, like you know, I, I can mm-hmm. see you're this or that, or you tell me like you're this or that, and then mm-hmm. I have this stereotype here. I'm gonna start <laughs> measuring you against this this stereotype that is in my head. Right, right. So that's why it is. It's really a blessing to be from Estonia. Because when I go to like a meeting or somebody or meet somebody new and they go, okay, where are you from? It's like Estonia. No, I, I don't know what that is. I don't have a stereotype for you. It's like, yeah, that's great. Right, so right, let, we can actually right. talk like a person to person. Like human so beings. I, yeah, I think it, it, it is definitely like a form of uh, privilege as well that people don't have stereotypes about me because they don't know like where the hell I'm from, basically. Yeah, uh, yeah. I totally, I it, totally get that. Yeah. yeah and then but I have, I can't like, it's like my forefathers haven't oppressed anyone and so on, which makes it just like easier. Uh, to communicate with, with all different people because, again, they don't have any, uh, you know, pre-existing stereotypes. No, I totally get that about how you drop into a society and you become a prisoner of stereotypes, yeah. whether you like it or not. And so, I, like I said, I lived in the U.S. for a long time and there are stereotypes about being black in America. And you are yeah. swimming against that current, whether you like it or not. I mean, I'm from Africa, so I didn't have any of that 
downloaded trauma and, and, and life experience. But over time, it becomes your reality. And the biggest thing I wanted was the freedom of just being a human being, mm-hmm. not being a black person. Because in America, you're black first before you're a human being, or you know, you're white first before you're a human being. Maybe in the, for white people, it doesn't really work that way because that's the default. Mm-hmm. So I just was craving to come back where I didn't have a stereotype, bro. So I completely get that. So moving back, to, moving back home to Nairobi after almost 20 years in the U.S., was freedom. Love, love, love America. It's got a lot of opportunity and a lot of good stuff, but it was just the stereotype experience was just heavy. It's really heavy. Yeah. But, it's um, it's get, so, getting I mean, worse there right now. There's all this identity uh, oh, yeah. politics. And then, and then they, will, they have all these like intersectionalities. It's almost like, like a point system that, okay, if you're like uh, this race and then this is your sexual preference, and I don't know, like whatever else stuff there, like then just you get like kind of points. If you're a woman and, and, and gay and black, then you get like more points than they're like totally focusing for it. Whereas, of course, the solution obvious is that it doesn't matter. We should talk to you, as you said, like human to human. It shouldn't be that, okay, like where the first thing I want to know about, okay, what is your skin color? What is your like sexual preference? All that it don't matter. You should be talking to the person. Be a human being. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the freedom of just being a human being. I found that back when I moved back home to, to, to Nairobi. But could you imagine, one of the things I, I think about also, just on this topic, and, and you had the opportunity to actually come to South Africa and, and found a company. And I, I struggle to imagine myself picking up and moving to Estonia or somewhere in Europe. I'm not saying it's impossible, but actually starting a company and hiring people. Because the truth of the matter is, the world lives with stereotypes, like you said. and I would just find it very, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I, I see my, I find it difficult to imagine someone like me going to Estonia and founding a company and being successful, not because of the mechanics or the gravity of building a business. I think it's like with most things with, with entrepreneurship, but just, you, you, you won't really know until you just try. And then you do know that like you will try and then you will fail, but the failure will be instructive. It will teach you how to do it better. Those are, those are objective. But the subjectivity of it all, right? Like, how dare you come here and actually employ people? What What are your thoughts on that? That specific example, like you going to Estonia, founding a company, we have that. So we have uh, actually now have our first uh, unicorn uh, in Estonia that is all founders are, are non-Estonians. The, but, the, the Eric, co- but Eric, yeah, the, non-Estonians from where? If they were, if you are African, that would be all black. That, that uh, be, like, so yeah, uh, Carlos is from Guatemala, Latin America. Uh, and we have more and more people also from Africa working in the startups in Estonia. And that's like the first stage because yeah. then like you learn and then build relationships. That, that's, a, that's a good background to become a founder uh, yourself. So I'm sure it's going to be like in, in the next generation of startups as well. So you'll have also African founded unicorns in, in Estonia. Absolutely sure that's cool. going to happen. So Estonia has a very vibrant tech ecosystem because it's starting from like Skype. You're yeah, the most digitized government and public services and yeah, the world exactly and it's still like super tiny so you have literally like unicorn founders you can just like call them everybody Amazing. like knows everybody there's a lot of support mm-hmm. we have gotten a lot of support from estonia including monetary support where we have a lot of shareholders are founders of other tech companies um from estonia so it's like a silicon valley in europe just to use a not the best analogy but is, would you liken it to that yeah, I think it's better Silicon Valley. It's not that collaborative anymore. It's like super, super competitive. Whereas okay. in like in Estonia, like you don't really have thought of to really compete on customers. They compete on talent. 
But again, that is also understood. Like, yeah, it's fine. Like people, like they're in one company for two, three years and then move on. Like, that's fine. There's this uh, uh, co- constant flow. But but the ecosystem definitely is, is very supportive and is actually well known by investors now as well. You have the talent there, you have the capital there and the weather isn't that good. So you can, most of, most of the time, it's just you can work. And working. Yeah, so let's move on to the next thing here. So biggest challenges or biggest challenge you faced in the last five and a half years? I think it's, so it, it's tempting to just go like, oh, this, this one big thing, like this big monster mm-hmm. that yeah, I've and then things, successfully yeah. defeated. And now it's always this a million little things. constant barrage of different <laughs> issues. And the most like difficult thing is just like to prioritize. Okay. There's uh, five fires and then I see something smoking back there, but okay, it's fine. It's smoking. It's not burning yet. So I'm going to let it smoke until it starts burning maybe next week. And then I get to it. You want to plan for stuff like that. And you want to really get, get the talent on board who can do this because already we're at the stage. It's like, it doesn't like we have almost a hundred people now. So my mm-hmm. individual contribution to any task, it doesn't really move the needle anymore. It doesn't matter if I'm, no. I'm like yeah. great at, I don't know, selling the product to dealerships or something. I'm, I'm still not going to be like, one person. If, if I'm like yeah. twice as good as somebody else, but it doesn't really matter because we have like multiple doesn't matter. people yeah. adding out. Like it's not going to change the needle and move the needle too much. You need to get the people in place who are actually doing the job. So it's always just the finding the, the right talent is very mm-hmm. challenging and challenging make, make, mm-hmm. making mistakes. The, the other thing, of course, like, uh, I mentioned a couple of times is just like this for us, it's just the fundraising, like the bottleneck to convince investors that this it's is a good, good investment to yeah. make. And actually this is getting now uh, better and better as well as we have this, um, now we have like a five-year track record. So it's, it's, it gives a lot of, um, uh, confidence to investors as well. So hiring would say is one of the big ones, getting the right people, finding the, the right talent, people, bringing uh, them in talent. Yeah. yeah, I always say this. In fact, uh, part of our Beyond Money support thesis at From Here Ventures is talent. We we built we built a communities of talent, and we'll continue to build those communities because after capital, it's talent. Because without capital, we can't even get to the talent part. But after capital, it's talent. Is my belief fundamentally. So, what's your company culture like? So we start off very easy, very simple. Two words: it's just uh, be kind. Mm-hmm. Everything comes from there. Just be mm-hmm. kind. And then we have like other more, let's say, formalized or let's say com- complex or sophisticated ways. So you know, we, we believe in, in radical transparency. So if there's a problem, we need to raise it immediately and then discuss it openly. It might be like a problem with the process or it might be a problem with, with the person, but everything relates back to that. So for example, if somebody's really doing a bad job, then you as their colleague, you need to be able to tell them like, hey, listen, radical candor, honest feedback here. I think you're not mm. doing like this, like this, is, it's going like really like badly right now, but here's how you, you, you can improve. Let's discuss this and so on. And then and the, the important thing is that for you to be able to give that constructive feedback, which is difficult to receive, that person needs to believe that you are actually a kind person because workplace. you care about the company, you care about the workplace you want is like, you want to maintain and improve the, the, the culture. So if you come from a kind place, then people can actually take your, let's say this negative feedback uh, as well. And ultimately also giving that like constructive feedback, that is a kind thing because otherwise 
Somebody yes. can can be under the impression, oh, I'm doing great here, but everybody around them, oh, like, what the fuck? He's like, oh my he's just, God. <laughs> yeah, and then that and that person doesn't know you're being unfair. Doesn't know. Like, you, exactly. should, you should be exactly. you should be able to tell them honestly, like what you what yeah. you feel and what you're seeing. This like permeates through like everything really. So you want to be there's obviously multiple like there's a lot of failures all the time happen, but right. the important thing is that we get back uh, up and we, we try again, being kind to even when. Cases where a customer or a, a corporation partner, whenever, let's say we have 10,000 customers, you have a couple of them who's going to be irate, not happy with something. Mm. And, he, and then in some cases they can, you know, just be like nasty, just say, or, 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 or right. say unkind things. Nasties. But yeah. even that, in that sense, so we're not saying that we, we're, we want to like keep taking the abuse in. We're saying like happily, you know, throw, throw the phone. Don't like somebody's like yelling, you just put the phone away and talk later when the person has calmed down. But at the same time, even with people who, let's say, don't tradition, you could say don't deserve to be treated kindly, we still do that because that is a reflection of our character, uh, not a refle- reflection of theirs. So Got it. First, Fantastic. First of all, always is just be kind. That's amazing. So how have you evolved as a leader since your earliest days? As we wrap up here, I want to again get through the next few questions as quickly as we can. How have you evolved as a leader from your earliest days? I think that's a better question to ask uh, the team that, or the teams that I'm working with. But I think for myself, I'm just more comfortable with uh, failures, like mm-hmm. constant failing. Just fail at this, fail at that, and keep failing, but just make sure you learn. And then maybe like next time you'll fail a little bit less or, or something. So I'm now very comfortable with like messing up things like all the time where things don't work or just failure. Now, it, so are you, well, before you, you really took failure very personally or very difficult? Yeah, especially out of, out of college, this one of this cool guy is always right Got and, figured smart out. and smart <laughs> and so on. And then you just do something, well, right. that didn't work at all. Yeah, that bar that we started, that was like a huge flaming failure. Like we lost so much money there. We learned a lot and it was fun. So that's okay. I'm very comfortable with it now. Yeah, it wasn't that fun at the time when it was happening. Yeah, it never is. So what would you do differently, if anything at all, in the last five and a half years or even beyond that? But what would you do differently, if anything? Nothing really. So it's obviously you need to look at your, again, like these mistakes and things you've done and, and to and use them to learn and then avoid the mistakes in the future. But then if I would not have made the mistake, then I would not have learned the lesson. So exactly, I might do that, that same mistake now, like two years later, but now the cost of it isn't like a, a thousand euros. Now it's like a million euros. So it's good that I made the, the cheap mistake back then. So the, the I, thousand, I wanna, thousand euros mistake. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. change anything. No. Fantastic. All right. So as we wrap up over here, this is, this is the kind of first, final few questions. It's a rapid fire round of questions. And here, what I want to want us to do is just, I say a word and you just respond with what comes to mind right away. Instinctive kind of thing. So I've got four of them, Africa. Home. Fantastic. Entrepreneurship. Awesome. Humanity. Kind. Vision 2030. No idea. <laughs> That's actually what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. 2030 is, is, is too far away. I, I can do it like 23, 4, 5 and so on. But like anybody who says like, I have this vision for 2030 is probably a politician and it's good. It's good, good to plan. It's important to plan. But for me, that's just way too far away. I have no, no idea where I will live, what job I will do. I hope it's not how you fundraise, my friend. (laughs) 
I hope this well, is going to close your fundraising pitches, Mike. <laughs> 30 is just, just too far. So we have always, by that time, it's like so many things can, can change, but we have like super detailed financials for the next three years, but four actually. 2030, like I, I can draw like a financial, or I can't, but our team can put together like a financial plan for 2030, but it's just going to be like completely wrong anyway. So what's your vision for the company? What's your vision for where you want to be? Forget the financials, just what are you building? What does success look like? Yeah, so again, for the for the next couple of years, so they, by the end of 2025, we want to have a million cars. So we've done 10,000 right now. We want to have a million cars by the end of 2025 in our first three markets. And those are South Africa, Mexico, and uh, Brazil. So that's this, uh, this medium-term goal. For, for longer-term things, again, it, it's difficult to say like this, for sure, this is the target that we need, need to reach and so on. But the point really for us is to keep doing what we're doing, just democratizing mobility, like just basically... Enabling people to get access to services or products that they should have in the first place. So make sure that you, we offer a, a wonderful service. We do it in a sustainable way. And then everything else will follow. So I'm not, we're not building anything. We should do this because there's like a potential acquirer, like five years down the line who might like this thing and so on. No, we were just building the best company that, uh, that we can. We're not too much uh, stressing about, okay, like this is the IPO and this is the exit or something. And that. I was looking at it more from a perspective of impact, but... Planet 42, final question. Where did that come from? The name? Yeah, it's so everybody likes the planet. So it's a nice and, and generic. Uh, but some people planet. act like they don't. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. Everybody, it's so funny, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, no, but it's insane. It's not really like controversial. It also doesn't restrict us to anything. So you can imagine if, I don't know, in five years time, you have like a, a payment card, like bank card that says Planet 42. And it's okay, makes sense. If you, if you get like insurance, you get like a car insurance. Um, so very uh, pragmatic, uh, practical, non-controversial, yeah, it, 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 yeah, exactly. simple name, but with yeah. no meaning behind it. But there, no, well, planet, it's planet. Uh, yeah, 42 is, mm. uh, is from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is my, one of my favorite oh. books. So 42 is, uh, in that book is, is the, is the um, answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. It's not really relevant for the customers and so on. It's just like a cool thing, like an insight. Uh, that's, that's good enough. Yeah. That's, I think I, I love the name. It's very memorable. It sticks, Planet 42, and it means something to you. And also, it, it, it's inclusive of the planet. So it's, it's a fantastic yeah. pick of a name. So congrats Absolutely. on that. I think maybe, like, uh, I'll just add, like, last point. There's a Planet 42 is officially certified as carbon neutral as well. Um, oh, wow. We don't really put it, like, in, in the front of our pictures or anything like, like that. So we're not saying that we're saving the planet here. Uh, we're still, these 10,000 cars that we bought, these are internal combustion engine cars that they do produce emissions. But what we are saying is that you can offset those emissions. So, for example, we do that with carbon finance. So we're backing a wind farm project in South Africa. We're fully audited and so on. It's got carbon emissions and the neutrality auditors. We check it, make sure to calculate how much emissions our cars produce. And then we offset that. So we just have this carbon neutrality certificate. And this is when you said Vision 2030. There's quite a lot of like big companies who are saying like, we're going to be carbon neutral in 2030 or something. And what we're saying is, you know, fuck that. You need to act now. So if a startup in South Africa can be fully carbon neutral, then it makes no sense that you have these big US or European or global companies who are saying, we'll see, like maybe in 10 years, we can perhaps be carbon neutral. It should be acting now. Yeah. Challenge to the world. I love it. And so that total make, makes total sense because you're living it out. You, you've taken the idea of planet, but you're actually actualizing it as a value to ensure that we preserve the planet. Even though your business is, is coming from its effect 
is is negative, you're redressing that in a very creative way and in a very intentional way. So congratulations to you, Eric. Look, it's been a thank you. fantastic speaking with you. I've learned a lot. I've enjoyed this. And thank you for coming on to the Chini Amaji podcast. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun.